0: The reason arguments and disagreements fail is because we go in there with the wrong expectations. That's true about disagreement itself as a skill that we have. And so these misconceptions are our sort of incorrect expectations that make us feel frustrated because our expectations aren't met. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen.
1: We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. My guest today has a career that is wide ranging. Beginning at Amazon as a software engineer and web developer and later founding multiple projects and businesses and even working as a product leader at places that you've absolutely heard of, like Twitter, Slack, Patreon, he and I share an intense interest in cognitive bias, but also in the topic of his new book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. Welcome to Happen to Your Career, Buster Benson.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Absolutely. I'm excited to have you on, too. This is something that I don't get to talk a lot about, this idea of productive disagreement. So we're going to dive into that today. But I'm really curious, Good. how did you come to be very interested in this idea of productive disagreement in the first place? How did that happen?
0: Yeah, it was a confluence of things, but it all came to an apex, I suppose, when you know I've always prided myself on being a civil Arguer. I've always been able to keep my cool. I've worked for 20 years facilitating hard conversations between different kinds of people engineering, design, leadership, you know, customers, clients. But I found out just how bad I was at it after coming out of the 2016 election and realizing that even having a conversation with my people I've known for my whole life has become dysfunctional and become really full of obstacles that I was not aware of. So I became fascinated with. This idea. Like, what am I missing? What is going on here that has broken down our ability to communicate with one another across differences? And I decided to really double down that and really find the answers and bring it to a practical level. Because I you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a, a courtroom judge. I'm just a person that has a lot of meetings and you know, eat with friends and family. And I just want to experience life and conversations in it a little bit more pleasantly
1: one of the things that as i dove into your book i found my head nodding along quite a bit partially because i had experienced many of these in a variety of different ways but also i see them all the time you talk early on about some of the misconceptions of disagreement and Mm -hmm. i was wondering if you could outline those because sure i think they're so useful as a baseline to be able to to start with because there are so many misconceptions it's it's almost borderline ridiculous but when you start to understand these you realize why why there's so many bad
0: disagreements yeah. or bad arguments yeah. about out there yeah it's sort of better in a sense because the reason arguments and disagreements fail is because we go in there with the wrong expectations That's true about disagreement itself as a skill that we have. And so these misconceptions are sort of incorrect expectations that make us feel frustrated because our expectations aren't met. So the three are arguments aren't bad. You know, I I think of them as either productive or unproductive. And so really the goal is to make them from unproductive to productive and to actually have them in the first place. The second one is it's not easy to change people's minds. So we oftentimes expect to be able to do that. And when it doesn't happen, we get frustrated and we think, what are we doing wrong? Like, why is that person so stubborn? But really, this is a more complex process to change a person's mind than we think it is. I liken it to carrying a a million rocks from one pile to the next. You know, our brain and all of its neurons are like billions of of connections. You can't, each of those connections has to be rewired to change your mind about something. You can't do that in a single sitting. It requires a relationship and time. And the third one is, Arguments don't end. Arguments, we think they should, but they don't, right? And anytime you think of a relationship and you dig into like what are the common arguments, you'll notice that the same kinds of things happen over and over and over again. It's because these are long threads. They're not things that come to life and die and come back to life. No, they're just hidden under the surface of the relationship. And that applies to, you know, relationships, but it also applies to work. It applies to um, our politics, you know, there are issues in our country happening right now that are conversations that began hundreds of years ago and still have not been resolved. So we should you know sort of get seated and sort of be prepared for the fact that they're going to be around. We have to deal with them in a more of a nuanced and maintenance mode versus trying to just get rid of them completely.
1: that second misconception, arguments change minds. Why do you think that we, perceive arguments? I know I certainly have. I spent probably many years growing up and then maybe even a good 10 years into my professional career, thinking that that's partially what arguments were for. Like, I'm going to change your mind during the <laughs> during this discourse and not realizing that that is a fallacy or a misconception
0: in many different ways. Why do you think that that is so prevalent? Well, I think it comes up because it does happen in some venues if you think about education like the classroom you know your teacher is there to change your mind about the topic at hand like your goal is to have your mind you know filled with new information and to basically correct incur- you know misconceptions in that classroom um, and so in environments where there the agenda is education and you're willing in there and you trust the authority you can change minds and you know and mentorship mentorship has, you know, it works. But that is just a small subset of the total number of arguments, the kinds of contexts and communities that we're in. And we need to be okay with the fact that that's not the case in other contexts. Like most of the time, you're not in a classroom listening to a teacher and you're not willing to just basically change your mind about whatever is said. Most of the time we consider ourselves equals um, or there's some other power dynamic that makes it hard to just fully trust the information that's coming through. And if you think about it in that context, what does change minds is not information, it's stories um, and it's plans and tests and like working together in collaboration. And those environments, you don't need to change minds. You need to do something and learn about the world and grow from that. So if
1: all of these misconceptions are there and these are ways we should no longer think about disagreement and arguments, then what is a much more helpful lens to begin to look at this
0: through? Yeah, I see. I want to reframe disagreement as a opportunity to integrate a new perspective into your life. So we have a limited view of the world. We don't know everything. People we disagree with are in the same boat. They don't know everything. They're also on their own path to development. But there is a mutually beneficial situation where I can learn from that person, that person can learn from me because we have such a different set of information to bring to the table. And so rather than shying away from it or seeing a disagreement and running to the other side of the street, or just trying to avoid them entirely, we can approach them and seek them out as ways to learn in the same way that, you know, we see in three dimensions because we have two eyes that are in you know, different places on our face. We can see the world differently if we consider other people our eyes to the world and be able to use them is to see a different perspective on why a different belief can coexist with my own. And it's big enough to have both of them. And ultimately, we can make each other better by talking about it.
1: I love that, particularly the idea of looking at this as an opportunity. And you know, I, I think back to I think back to actually one of the first times that I started to realize that maybe there's opportunity in different types of disagreements. And actually, it was probably when I was even 18 years old, where I'd asked for a raise Mm -hmm. at this pizza place that I was working at. And the owner of the pizza place told me no. And he provided Mm -hmm. a a bunch of different reasons. And at first I was pretty upset about it, but eventually came back. We continued the conversation, continued the discourse, and ultimately the disagreement along with it. And eventually that turned it into a way to get that raise or a pathway to get that raise. And that's when it started to click for me early on, even though I made many, many mistakes (laughs) later on that, uh, oh, maybe there is actually opportunity in this, what most people would look at as conflict. So I share that. But what I'm curious for you, were there any places along the way or events that happened along the way that particularly struck for, for you that maybe
0: there is opportunity buried in here?
1: Oh that my gosh!
0: Yes, so many. It, it was very interesting to approach this topic and then to see how it impacted my actual life. Um, because I was seeking out disagreements to, um, you know, test theories and to yeah. try experiments. Um, you know, all almost every aspect of my life changed. You know, I changed. I changed jobs. Um, we've now like opened the door for like potentially moving to another part of the country. My my relationship has gotten a lot more richer. We've also you know explored like we were going to therapy now. We're we're, we're just really more interested in developing our relationship because we're no longer avoiding the hard conversations. Um, and as soon as you stop avoiding the hard conversations, you realize wait a second, there's all kinds of interesting things on the other side of these conversations that I've been neglecting myself from trying to have. And so. That's what I mean by like the world gets bigger when you can see these as doorways to more options, more opportunities and growth, because sometimes you get to the other side of a disagreement. And you're like, wow, I can't relate to myself from a few days ago or a few weeks ago because I've changed. And that's just a very fulfilling experience that I think can help counteract the anxiety we feel when we're just trying to avoid everything.
1: Maybe you address that in the book and I just missed it. But that's one of the things that I found as a re- maybe even the most compelling reason to dive into disagreement and what other people would consider to be undesirable or potentially difficult interactions, engagements, whatever we want to call this, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. the idea that you grow through every single one of them pretty drastically, yeah. and it feels a little bit like growth on steroids in some case, depending on how... Challenging yeah. the disagreement might be, but is that something you you spoke about in the book, and I just missed it, or is that uh,
0: is yeah? I think there is this concept of like the obstacle is the path. It comes from you know Stoic philosophy, but yeah, you know, it, it applies to a lot of things where there's lots of old Greek terms for this, like anagogic, you know, spiraling, you know, where you, by going through the crucible or going through the chrysalis, if you want to be the butterfly metaphor, like. These are scary, and oftentimes we've reached a point in our life for optimizing for safety or security or risk avoidance where it's pretty sparse in terms of chrysalises and cocoons around us, but they're all there, and each one of them can change us in a little different way. And it happens very quickly. As soon as you say, like, Okay, well, this person who I have completely written off, I'm going to go have coffee with them and just ask them all these questions and see what happens. And suddenly, like, oh, wow, I feel. Like, why did I wait so long to, to have that conversation? And suddenly that's how a lot of places in your life will feel, um, because you get something out of it. We, we think that there's the only justifying um, sort of response to an argument is to be right. And that, that's actually a pretty cold and lonely feeling, even though it's, you know, r- like sort of righteous in its own way. But feeling more connected to people, feeling like you've grown, feeling like you see the world in more dimensions, all of those things actually build up the most meaningful parts of our lives.
1: And that's a really interesting point, too, and I don't know that I've thought about it in that exact way, but even though there is something compelling, and I would actually say as a religious arguer (laughs) brought up as an arguer in one way or another, not necessarily always productive, but certainly falling into willing to have an argument Mm -hmm. type category, there's something that feels good about being right. However, Mm -hmm. it is disconnecting in a lot of different ways, to your point, and a much more connected and ultimately growth ridden path is is not
0: that, so I appreciate you pointing that out Do- yeah, yeah, I mean you, there's all these you know at the end of a movie when the villain is like, "I finally conquered the world, you're like, "Oh my gosh." Now he's gonna be sad. <laughs> what is he gonna do with all that? <laughs> you know. And as a parent, I feel that sometimes too. Like I, I know the right thing for my kids, and then I'm like, okay, you have to do this, and then I get my way, and you know, like I just felt like, oh, bummed out afterwards. So yeah, like if we think about these feelings as the fruit of disagreement, that's the wrong fruit, you know, the wrong feeling to really strive for.
1: So I'd like to talk about how now that we've established there are some really very good, very compelling reasons to one, look at this differently. As a as a topic in itself, and look at it as an opportunity, and then two that there are also some really compelling reasons, ranging from quality of life in relationships, all the way to, uh, in some cases, you know different different ways of getting to something that's desirable, getting to an outcome that's desirable. Uh, let's talk about how someone can actually do this, and how can they begin to become better at this, as you call it, the art of productive disagreement.
0: And it's interesting because there are no PhDs in disagreement out there. There's no products that are designed around this. And I think that's because the tricks are so simple that you could never make money off of them. (laughs) But so, for example, writing in your journal or a piece of paper or reflecting on disagreements after the fact, once you have sort of like your blood pressure has come back down, um, your heart rate's back down, And think about like what was the moment where I felt anxious about this? And what could I have said, you know, that was more proactive about that belief or that value that I have than the reaction that I had. So because we have to build up muscle memory around our beliefs and associate them with the threat. So if you could say, like, I felt threatened by you know this person who challenged me about this thing that I care about, and I just lashed out at them until you know I brought in another issue that I felt like I could win. Instead, I should talk about you know why that's important to me, and if I can associate that with the threat the next time, or you know maybe after three or four times, you might remember that in the moment and be like, oh yeah, this is about my you know my value of taking care of people and building a good environment for people to feel safe and whatever it happens to be, and you can bring that up and be like, okay, yeah, let's talk about this. Do you really think that it's you know that this value is is incorrect, and if so, what is what is your take on it, and how how's it wrong? And so that's. One of the hardest things is just like to opt in and say like I want to have more productive disagreements, and I'm going to pay attention to them and I'm going to treat them like a you know an exercise regime as much as a skill right like this is just a thing you practice, and you start off pretty bad. You know, the first time you go to the gym, you're like oh my gosh, I'm really out of shape. We're all really out of shape in terms of our of skills around productive disagreement, and it'll take a while. Might be a little sore for a while, but. That's the first step. Second step, I mean, there's a bunch of steps, but another one I'll mention is to just come up with a few good questions to ask when you're feeling sort of flooded and unable to, you don't know what to do. The bet, Rather than shutting down or flipping a table, you should ask a question. And the best questions are the ones that are really open. And so they don't, they don't have to be particularly about the topic, but just be like, Tell me more about where this is coming from. Tell me more. Where, how did you form this belief? What does it mean to you? Who do you admire that has this? And use that to give them a chance to talk a bit more about the background of their belief instead of just the talking points and the, the zingers. And give you a chance to catch yourself and be more prepared for the next step. Because being surprised by a confrontation is really distracting. And we tend to just immediately flip into battle mode. And that's just part of our biology. And so it'll take some time.
1: What are some of the questions that you use personally?
0: I really like any question that's a variant of what am I missing? So some examples are like what do people like me tend to misunderstand about you? Because then that person gets to you know reveal a little bit what they what they think you think and also fill in the gaps. So it's double duty. I really like you know how is this useful uh, because Beliefs are there as tools, oftentimes. Like I believe that this is an important policy because I believe that by having this policy, this thing in the world will happen and it will be more like this. Oftentimes, the thing that it will happen afterwards is easier to relate to than the policy. You can both be against homicides and violence and have different, you know, on opposite sides of the gun control, you know, debate, for example, or the immigration debate. You can both care about the value of human life and be on the opposite sides of the abortion debate. So finding out what the ideal states are that you can relate to are good questions and move aside the talking points and the easy, repeatable things that have been sort of circulating in the debate for a long time.
1: What is, you know, when you you think or when you talk about the first step where you were saying, you know, make sure that uh, after you've settled down, you come back and you are evaluating, what caused you to have anxiety? Or Mm -hmm. at what point did you essentially start shifting into, as you called it, battle mode and reflecting on that? I'm curious if uh, you could share a time where you have done that or experienced that personally, where you needed to, and it was helpful to use that.
0: Yeah. So this is an example I use um, in the book, but I will repeat it, which is like there was a time when my son had a day off the school that we didn't know about. And my wife was like, hey, can you um, stay home for the first half of the day and cover for that? Because I had already had plans to do something. And that was the moment. From my perspective, the anxiety was like, oh, crap, I can't get my work done. There's this thing I was looking forward to doing. And so in order to resolve that anxiety, from my perspective, you know, I valued my time alone to work. Um, And so I said, what if we just let him stay home? He's eight years old. You know, he's sort of old. He's old enough. He can call us if he needs to, because that resolved my anxiety about us both being able to get our things done. That was the wrong approach because I didn't voice the value. I just voiced the solution. Um, It wasn't until much later this had devolved and it became really about whether or not I'm a good parent. Do I care enough about the family to occasionally sacrifice my own time to take one for the team? And I like to believe that I do, you know, want to pitch in and I do do, do the work, but I, my actions and my words were not expressing that. So, it's, you know, a couple of days later, you know, I did the, you know, the journaling, I wrote down and figured it out. I came back and was like, you know, that conversation before I was just reacting to like the surprise of not having the time to work. Yes, tomorrow. And I realized it was really about are we able to collaborate and work together as a team to take care of the family? And absolutely. I'm 100% um, on that. And then she's like, well, duh, you should be, come on. What's, what's your problem? You know? And so ultimately we're like, yeah, great. Okay. We're on the same page. Obviously I can do that stuff. So next time that kind of conversation happens and it has happened, you know, multiply and then it's easier to go back to that. Oh yeah. Am I willing to take one for the team? Yes, I am. Okay. Let's do this. And things you know, with a lot less frustration, I might
1: say. I love that example, partially because I can really relate to it and partially because my same tendency is to react to the the surprise of the situation or the change in plan of the situation right, or right. the that element as opposed to reacting what would be much more helpful, much more productive. So thank you for indulging me. And what, what else? Somebody who is beginning to think about this as an opportunity, what else can they do
0: besides these couple of uh, approaches that... Yeah, so these—it's really handy to think about these frameworks in when you're trying to make a decision too. So it's not just about arguments and disagreements, but sometimes the disagreement is in your own head of, like, should I quit my job or not? Should I change careers? You know, should I, you know, ask for promotion? Uh, all these things where the argument is in your head about, you know, what you think is the safe path and what you think is the desirable path. And so this is again when you know having ability to map out the disagreement. Um, and you, even if you're both sides of it and saying like, this is, you know, this is what I think, you know, which these are the options. These are how they map to my values. Um, these are how they map to my potential regrets. These are the opportunities for me to take a step forward and see if my fears are going to be realized or see if my hopes are going to be realized without necessarily making them happen. So maybe an initial conversation. Or you know, an exploratory interview, that kind of thing. Like these things can happen when they're non-committal necessarily, but you learn new information. And so that's the key: is shift it from once you understand what your values are, make a proposal and do a little test to see if the proposal is going to unfold in the way that you hope it will, or not. Because if it either way, you're going to learn something and you're going to be able to make a better proposal next time and next time next time. So it. it It's the process of doing that, that we become more in tune with our opportunities in front of us. In the
1: book, you describe a variety of little mini experiments that you did to understand how people react, why they react in different ways. And one of them that you talk about was the asking people about water that's left out Mm. over a period of time and just getting back some of the reactions and ultimately During this, you dig into those reactions as well. But can you share a little bit about that, how that came to be, and what you learned from that?
0: In my desire to like understand the anatomy of a disagreement, sometimes it's easier to take on disagreements that have a lot of the emotional aspect, but not the identity aspect. Because the identity aspect is hard to step out from. So this was a great one. And it actually came about serendipitously by just asking friends and old and who have been married for a long time, like, what are your you know, repeating arguments? And this was one that (laughs) was like one of the first answers of my good friends that said, we always argue about whether or not it's okay to drink while it's been left out. And when I thought about this, I had an immediate, like, Oh, obviously not. And suddenly like I was totally entrenched in my opinion that I had just formed. Right. And when I asked a bunch more people, the same thing happens. Some people were really against it. Some people were really for it. This is a good canvas to, you know, examine anxiety and sort of our responses to it without the fear of you know unraveling into a, like a political debate or something. So I loved it for that reason. Ultimately, after we shared stories about our different positions and I made this you know best case argument for each side, I actually changed my mind now I drink water sometimes it's been laying out because I'm like, oh, it's gonna change a little bit of flavor because it's warm. Um, there's a little bit of bacteria, but most likely not dangerous unless there's a cat around, in which case probably you should throw it out. Um, <laughs> you know, um, all these different factors like, oh, yeah, I could see why different environments would lead people to different conclusions here. And it was the first time that I had a really solid experience of, like, oh, yeah, there isn't a true position here. The true position is a superposition of different experiences and different preferences, and all of them are okay. If you don't like the taste of warm water, you know, slightly old water, then I can't convince you otherwise. Right. So I like that for that.
1: So for the sake of context, uh, one of the things that I believe you learned was since you're not a cat owner, then there were cat owners that pointed out that, hey, I'm not gonna leave it around because I just assume that the cat's going to get into it as well. And that was a funny little antidote. And I very much appreciated that the book was not just informational, but also very entertaining. And uh, I also appreciated the uh, multitude of Star Wars and Spider-Man references as well, but it was an entertaining, entertaining book as well. So there's the context on the, on the cat aspect. What do you think in going through and taking the time to really deep dive in this particular area? And clearly you've described that you have benefited immensely for yourself and your own relationships and your own life, but what did you learn? out of this experience that just surprised
0: you quite a bit? So many surprises along the way. And I think part of it is I didn't really grasp how almost every single minute of the day has some relationship to disagreement until I was thinking of life through that lens. Every single in exchange, whether it be with a barista or, you know, someone on the street that you bump into or, you know, person in the elevator or, you know, your boss or your, your family, like it's just everywhere. And we're always dancing around the skill, but not necessarily getting better at it. So the surprise was that it's possible to get better at this fairly easily and that we're not, that there's this blind spot that is preventing us from really thinking of it that way. So that, I saw an opportunity there that was surprising. The other one was just how much we are really like the dominant voice in our heads right now is the avoidance voice of saying, I've tried my best. I've done my, I put my good foot forward. I, and it, it got stomped on and I give up. And I'm no longer going to even approach that topic for the rest of my life or however long, you know, that's closing off a huge chunk of the world that you're just ruling it out. And sad how we can do that over and over again until we're in a really tiny box of potential conversations and potential people we can talk to. And despite our initial thought that like, oh, there'll be so much more peaceful in this little tiny box. No, it's really lonely. It's really anxious because like you, you're always having to navigate and find your way back to the to that safe space instead of being OK with, you know, the, the messiness of a potential disagreement. So that was surprising that I didn't have to convince people to be more productive in their unproductive disagreements. But they, we just had to re-enlist people into the conversation to be even interested in talking to people.
1: That's really interesting. I used to work in HR and organizational development and lots of places where conflict and disagreement would find its way to me often when it was out of hand. And that's one of the things that I saw over and over. And I've seen this personally too, even in my close relationships, like with my wife or other places too, where they someone may have broached an area or topic, or something else, and they may have felt that they tried their best or that they put their best foot forward, as, as you've said, and they've done that. So mentally, if they've checked it off, is it's never either going to change or they can't work through this type of disagreement or they can't have something that's productive out of it. So it becomes closed off. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, what I found really interesting is that once you are able to and willing to push past that there's just so much opportunity that's on the other side uh, to impact the I'd call it the quality of life I don't, I don't know what you would call it but that that's just fascinating to me
0: that works for me and I think like what you're from early on about you know asking for the job we take no as like a final answer oftentimes and if we treat each other's opinions as a conversation rather than as a command I think that kind of response will be apparent everywhere. Uh, there's so many other places in our lives that that we've preemptively said, oh, that's a door. I can't go through that. When actually you could just push the door and it'll open right up. But we were like the elephant that's being held by the rope, right? Because we pulled on it once and it was a chain. Now it's like a little tiny little rope. It, it can never hold us, but we believe that it does. And then by believing that it actually does, it's self-fulfilling.
1: Have you ever heard the story of the two women? Um, I'm not sure why they're women necessarily, but two women... You know, essentially like arguing over an orange.
0: Uh no, I
1: haven't. So this is one that commonly gets used in like beginning negotiation and negotiations training and the the short version of the story is there's two women, they both need the orange. One needs the orange because she needs the the peel for mm-hmm essentially baking. The other needs it, orange, because it wants to make the fruit into juice. However, Mm -hmm. they end up splitting the orange in half because (laughs) neither one takes the time or effort to continue to engage in the conversation and continue to push past that really hard part, and they become closed off and just assume that the answer is no. So the obvious solution, if they're both going to be happy, is to split the orange in half, when if they would have pushed past that, they would have realized that there's a really, really wonderful solution underneath the surface.
0: Yes, it, yes. It seems yeah, like lo- that's really relevant to what you're talking about. Exactly, that illustrates the same idea of things are invisible to us until we communicate. It's impossible to know what the other person wants until you really are able to ask them and listen to the answer. And if that's not part of our toolbox and we haven't learned you know, how to do that or we don't feel comfortable doing it, then it might as well be the fact true that they just want half the orange and but in fact the world is a lot more rich than that and we can there's always pieces and parts that you know aren't as threatening to us and can be offered to others in a mutually beneficial way if we just but we that skill of communication is key right Is, is asking the right question and listening to it
1: what it my my final question that i really wanted to ask you buster is for someone who is in the situation where they they know they okay they're bought in they realize that there's a different quality of life underneath the surface here they recognize that this is an area I want to become better at what advice would you give that person to take small steps and allow something that can be very uncomfortable for them to move that more into their comfort zone
0: yes i think the first step is to start small don't over Estimate our skill levels here. It's okay to be a beginner. Choose beginner tasks like you know, open, have a conversation with somebody about something you just mildly disagree with, or start small and build up that muscle memory or that you know emotional memory of having a successful disagreement. And the first couple times it happens, it's like it feels like magic. It feels like you know this is impossible. How could I possibly come away from this feeling better than I did going in? because we've gotten in the habit of, of thinking it's always going to be painful and that can be self-fulfilling but switching it to an enjoyable interaction is the first key step and so that means starting at your somewhere that's going to be easy there's all, and since arguments don't end you can always come back to ones that you've had in the past that didn't go well um, and you can do that over and over again until you get better at them like you can sort of see it as a video game in a sense if, you're, if you use that metaphor or you can see it as going to the gym like every once in a while you get to level up the weight so you get to or you get to the next level or you get to go on a longer run and you can build the challenge as you go. But the key is to think of it as a long term skill that you develop that you're not you weren't born with and no one taught you. So it's okay to start where you are. And you know, that's the that's the beginning and that's where I would recommend people start.
1: I so appreciate that. And really appreciate you making the time and taking the time and, and sharing what you've learned about this topic, both through writing the book and over the years. This has been a ton of fun. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You heard me talk about it in my conversation with Buster, but one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring him on to the show here is because these skills of working through disagreements and dealing with disagreements form a foundation when it comes to things like negotiation. In negotiation, you need to work to present the value in the situation, but to do that, you need to find out what the other person or company finds valuable. And like in the example of you know the women with the orange, that uh, the story that I was telling them at the end of our episode, uh, neither one took the time and effort to find out what the other really needed, and as a result, neither got what they wanted. If they would have just taken a little time, they would have discovered that each one could have had exactly what they needed and not settled, right? Okay, well, we wanna help with you not settling too, negotiating or otherwise. And one of the very best ways that we do that is through our Career Change Bootcamp program. And guess what? We've just made some pretty massive upgrades to the program overall. And we're gonna be opening it up at the beginning of January. If you want to be the first to know when Career Change Bootcamp 3.0 is available, just send me an email, scott at happenedyourcareer.com, and put conversation in the subject line. And this will give you the first chance to get into the program before it fills up because we'll connect you with our team to be able to have a conversation, understand what you need, and figure out if Career Change Bootcamp 3.0 is truly a fit for you. Now, next week, guess what? going to be doing a little bit of a different episode next week, because we have had this company for seven years now, and I have been doing this full-time for the last four years now. So I'm actually going to share on our next episode the top four things that we've learned, many that you might not realize, in working with thousands of people and having the data that goes along with it there's some really surprising things in there that uh, that we've realized that it takes to be able to make a career transition so I'm going to share it personally from my own career changes especially as I left several jobs and then uh, made quite a few changes and then also break it down from what we've learned as an organization helping many people do the exact same thing make sure that you hit the subscribe button, on the podcast so that you don't miss it. And it downloads and finds you in your sleep automatically. I'll catch you next week. I am out. Adios.